I would suppose that uh, the first lecture of the year has been the Dean's Lecture since the establishment of the new program, although I didn't check to find out. But this year, for the first time, the Dean's Lecture has been entitled the Christopher B. Nelson Lecture in honor of his 26-year tenure as president of St. John's College Annapolis. It was thought appropriate because of Mr. Nelson's support throughout his 26-year tenure of the program, the faculty, the students, and the deans who worked with him so closely. It's also um, fortuitous because for many years, uh, Mr. Nelson, together with Ms. Axelrod, had a Monday seminar on a variety of things. And for two years, the seminar read through the whole of Plutarch's lives. Um, and I was fortunate to be a part of that uh, very often, though not always. And uh, this lecture owes a lot to what I learned there. I began the writing of my lives for the sake of others, but I find I am continuing the work and delighting in it now for my own sake also, using history as a mirror and endeavoring in a manner to fashion and order my life in conformity with the virtues therein depicted. So Plutarch begins the life of Timoleon. Virtuous action, he says in another life, straight away so disposes a man that he no sooner admires the works of virtue than he strives to emulate those who wrought them. The noble creates a stir of activity towards itself and implants at once an active impulse. By means of the history of the deed, it endows the viewer with the resolution to act. It's a common trope. A great reader of Plutarch, Machiavelli, says, quote, as to the exercise of the mind, a prince should read histories and consider in them the actions of excellent men. He should do as some excellent man has done in the past who found someone to imitate, whose exploits and actions he always kept beside himself. Among Plutarch's parallel lives, we find Romans who imitated the Greeks with whom they are paired, Caesar imitating Alexander, Cicero Demosthenes, Publicola Solon, even among the Greeks, Aristides the Athenian emulated Lycurgus the Spartan. Philippomen, the so-called last of the Greeks, imitated Epaminondas, perhaps the finest of them all. I originally set out to read and write about Plutarch's lives because I thought it might give me some insight into what effect reading well might have on how one lives. I will say nothing this evening about what constitutes a liberal education, despite this being the Dean's Lecture. But I hope my original purpose, reflecting on the relationship between reading and action, will remain present, at least in the background. If the proper purpose of writing and reading lives were to select one life and to view it, to measure oneself against it, and to adjust course as needed, why write lives in parallel? What does it even mean for lives to be parallel? Lines may be parallel, straight lines, even curved lines are parallel when they have the same shape and size, differing only in location. True, sometimes the paired men are very like in character. Of Phocion and Cato, the first an Athenian opponent of Alexander, the second a Roman opponent of Caesar, Plutarch says that their characters had the same stamp, shape, and color. They had austerity and humanity, courage and caution in the same proportions so that we shall need a very subtle instrument of reasoning for the discovery and determination of their differences. 
perhaps not accidentally, Plutarch provides no concluding comparison for these two, as if it were superfluous. So close in character, it would hardly matter whether a reader chose to keep Cato or Phocion by his side to imitate in all things. Other times, Plutarch's pairs are alarmingly dissimilar. Sometimes they seem to be paired only because of some similar accident in their lives. Nicius and Crassus seem to have been paired because each suffered a catastrophic and fatal military defeat. True, both are uncommonly wealthy and owe their prominence to that wealth, but Crassus is far more unscrupulous in acquiring it. Nicius is grave, public-spirited, and honest, but also pusillanimous, timorous, and pious to the point of folly. Crassus is much bolder, impious, magnanimous, but ambitious beyond his abilities and forever distracted and debased by avarice. Though their fortunes are similar, they endure them differently. Nicius correctly foresees the difficulty of the Sicilian expedition, but being compelled by the people to take it on despite himself, in its execution, he's hampered by his timidity. Crassus, in his boldness, fails to foresee the difficulty of the Parthian War, but unlike Nicias, he finally faces death resolutely. The lives are not parallel in the way that lines are parallel. Although not intersecting, they exhibit, exhibit somewhat different shapes. They're not merely transposed from one place to another, from Greece to Rome. Broad similarities frame intriguing differences. Parallel lives are lives meant to be compared. 18 of the 22 extant pairs are followed by explicit comparisons, a combined judgment or sentence. The comparisons share a loose scheme. Plutarch generally weighs the military exploits first and then domestic political accomplishments. Other common fields of comparison include distinctive virtues, education, household economy, and frequently the manner in which they died. Praise as well as criticism is qualified. The carefully balanced judgments often take a rhetorically ornate form. A typical example of Nicias and Crassus, quote, the Athenians sent out Nicias to the war against his will, and Crassus led out the Romans against theirs. Crassus brought misfortune on Rome, as Athens brought misfortune on Nicias. Another example of Alcibiades and Coriolanus, Plutarch says, the first, Alcibiades, the first the citizens could never hate even when they suffered harm from him, and the second, even when he was admired, could never be loved. The allegedly parallel lives give ample material for cleverly constructed disanalogies. Whereas Nicias was a victim of Athenian enthusiasm, Crassus was at fault more than the Romans he led. However incisive and revealing the juxtapositions, the ornate comparisons sometimes take on the air of a rhetorical exercise. One fears the cleverness of the form may be more important than the matter. The comparisons do show that the so-called parallel lives are not set gently side by side, but ranged toe to toe, as if preparing to do combat, though never quite coming to blows. Having decided to write a life of Romulus and wondering whom the founder should be paired with, Plutarch quotes Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes, asking, whom shall I set so great a man to face, or whom oppose, who's equal to the place? Plutarch comments on how very much Cato and Phocion resemble one another, 
because their similarity poses a challenge to discovering and articulating the differences. The discriminating and weighing of differences appears to be Plutarch's ultimate intention. But the meticulous weighing of virtues and vices of each life has the effect of diminishing the admiration a reader might hold for either. Each takes on a problematic air. The virtue is no longer so vibrant that it compels immediate imitation. One pauses in order to study the shadows. Given that the Greeks and Romans are ranged toe to toe, the global intention appears to be to measure the two peoples, the conquered against the conquerors, the teachers against their students. I will not speak about this tonight because I'm not primarily interested in what is Greek as opposed to what is Roman, although much could be said on it. One of Plutarch's pairs shows that there's another dimension to the comparison. The sole double pairing, two Greeks paired with two Romans, Agus and Cleomenes, two Spartans who sought to restore the Spartan regime to its ancient rigor by redistributing the land, are paired with Tiberius and Gaius Crocus. Here we are clearly intended to compare Spartan to Spartan, Roman to Roman. These lives, pursuing the same ends in the same city and the same era, are not parallel, but intersecting. Agus, living in a corrupt era, embraces the original simplicity and rigor of Spartan dress and meals. He's uncommonly temperate and shows greatness of soul. He is, however, undone by his generosity. Having deposed the other Spartan king, Agus nevertheless spares his life. The king, however, is soon restored by the ephors, so that prior to effecting his reforms, Agus is betrayed and executed. Cleomenes, strangely, the inheritor of Agus's wife, then also inherits his ambitions. He embraces Agus's old-fashioned moderation and simplicity of life, but lacks Agus's gentle nature. Cleomenes is more spirited and eager to rule, tyrannically, if necessary. With a band of mercenaries, he executes the ephors and redistributes the land immediately. On the meanest of resources, he makes the greatest possible military conquests in the least time, but just as quickly loses it all to the Macedonians. As neither Spartan achieves his end, how does one weigh their efforts? It's worth noting in passing that Machiavelli's judgment is unequivocal. Cleomenes learned from the fate of Agus that to reestablish the laws of Lycurgus, it would be necessary to rule alone, even if this means committing crimes. Plutarch's account supplies the grounds for Machiavelli's inference, but Plutarch's judgment is more even-handed. Agus proceeded too softly, he says, Cleomenes with too much boldness and violence. Agus was closer to the gentleness of Lycurgus, who established the Spartan regime without violence. But, Plutarch says, quote, with Lycurgus, no other Greek is worthy to be compared. As the two men faced the same challenges, shared some virtues but differed in others, the juxtaposition of these intersecting lives leads one to wonder what constellation of virtues, if any, might have been sufficient to achieve the desired end. The virtues unique to each appear to draw into relief the faults of the other. Is it the fate of each virtue always to fall short, to take on the appearance of vice when viewed from another angle? This lecture is loosely structured around three pairs of lives. The first two are what I've called intersecting pairs, the third parallel. I will move too quickly, setting a bad example 
for anyone thinking about their annual essay. Each life deserves a closer reading than I give it. In order to think about the optimal constellation of virtues, I will first consider the lives of Themistocles and Aristides, familiar from our reading of Herodotus. The two were very different in character. In some respects, Themistocles appears the paradigmatic Athenian, while Aristides emulated Lycurgus, a Spartan. Themistocles, born with modest means, was an eager, clever, successful, and occasionally unscrupulous moneymaker. Aristides, by contrast, was born into wealth, but neglected his affairs and left little or nothing to his heirs. Themistocles' defining characteristic is his natural intelligence, his ability to manipulate ambiguities for different audiences, sharpened by a modest, sophistical learning. At the conclusion of the war, Themistocles is awarded the prize for wisdom. Aristides' name is synonymous with justice. Themistocles, from his youth, sought the glory of leading all of Greece. Aristides had no interest in currying popular favor. He entered politics to secure justice and safety for Athens. The two men were rivals from their youth, and Aristides was ostracized, exiled, at Themistocles' instigation because the Athenian people paradoxically distrusted the just man more than the clever one. In preparation for the Persian War, Themistocles famously persuaded the city to spend its silver on ships. Plutarch, quoting Plato's laws, says that Themistocles turned the Athenians from steadfast hoplites into sea-tossed mariners. In the course of the war, as we recall from Herodotus, the entire city put to sea and took refuge on an island. After the conclusion of the war, Themistocles built the long walls that connected Athens to its port. He solidified the city's maritime character and turned the regime further away from aristocracy towards democracy. About these changes in regime, Plutarch does not pass judgment. He only demurely says, whether by orienting Athens to the sea, Themistocles did injury to the integrity or purity of the political administration, let the philosopher investigate. Here too, Plutarch is alluding to Plato. In the laws, the interlocutors describe how to establish a good city. Not the city that is altogether best, one where all things are held in common, the city described in the Republic, but a second or third best city, a city that comes as close as feasible to being unified. The founders of this city wish the city to be barely far enough from the sea to ensure that it has an agrarian rather than a merchant economy on the principle that this fosters virtue, primarily courage and moderation. In other words, the interlocutors in the laws deliberately choose a city of courageous, steadfast hoplites over clever, sea-tossed mariners. At the close of the dialogue, however, it becomes clear that the city needs a place where wisdom can be cultivated through conversation. And this requires, in turn, that the city have greater experience of the world, that it send out envoys and observers to travel across the sea. In other words, the interlocutors in the laws eventually seek a way to reincorporate something of the capacities of sea-tossed mariners among their steadfast farmers to attain an excellence that incorporates something from both ways of life. Returning our attention to Plutarch, Themistocles appears as the paradigmatic sea-tossed mariner, Aristides, the steadfast hoplite. 
The contrast of mariners and hoplites alludes to the different ways battles are fought on land, on sea, on land and sea. Hoplite battle relying on keeping formation and holding one's ground. Battles at sea depending on swift maneuver and cunning. You cannot by nature hold your ground in a boat. The differing styles of combat require differing virtues, different skills, and underlying characters. In the Persian War, Themistocles engineers the maritime victory at Salamis. Aristides plays a decisive role in the land victory at Plataea. The two lives, red and parallel, show that the salvation of Greece as a whole depended on the temporary harmony of these contrasting modes. Aristides uncharacteristically supports Themistocles' duplicitous stratagem, in which the latter cooperates with the enemy in order to entrap the Greek fleet, compelling the Greeks, against their wishes, to fight in a location that is favorable to them. The irony of Salamis is that the Greek allies would prefer to withdraw the fleet in order to preserve their mobility, and Themistocles plays this double game in order to constrain their mobility and compel them to take a stand. Aristides accordingly participates in the sea battle by standing guard on a small island amidst the two fleets, as if on a naturally immobile ship. At the decisive moment, the sea-tossed mariners and the steadfast hoplites are one and the same, the opposed virtues blended to maximum effect. After the victory, Aristides dissents from another stratagem, Themistocles' plan to sail to the Hellespont and destroy Xerxes' bridge. Aristides reigns in Themistocles' love of glory, putting more value on freeing Greece than acquiring empire over Asia. In another striking episode, Themistocles conceives a plan to give Athens instantaneous rule over its Greek allies, a nefarious stratagem. The Athenian people decide that the plan should be told to Aristides alone. They will assent to it if he does. Of the plan, Aristides tells the Athenians, nothing could be more advantageous or more unjust. The people decline. Across these episodes, Aristides enables the exercise of Themistocles' scheming in some cases and curbs it in others. We see the marriage of Themistocles' unscrupulous wisdom and Aristides' good judgment into a policy that maximizes Athens' power and reputation within Greece. Are the two men equal partners? Plutarch praises Aristides more highly. On account of his justice, Aristides is godlike, he says. For while humans typically characterize the gods as incorruptible or powerful, Plutarch asserts that to be just is more distinctive of the gods, since the elements of nature are incorruptible, since the elements of nature are also incorruptible, and natural catastrophes are powerful, but without intelligence and reason, there is no justice. Plutarch also repeats Socrates' judgment in the Gorgias, that while Themistocles and Pericles made Athens wealthier and more powerful, only Aristides practiced politics for the sake of virtue. Finally, it is clear that the fruitful cooperation between the two owes more to Aristides than to his partner. Given this praise of Aristides, one might be tempted to think that all the virtue lies on the side of Aristides, and his partnership with Themistocles only represents the need of virtue within politics to compromise with amoral expediency. Yet I do not think this is Plutarch's understanding. Although Aristides is perfectly scrupulous in private affairs, he acknowledges that advantage, advantage sometimes is to be preferred to justice in civil affairs. 
Moreover, Plutarch mildly faults Aristides even for his private poverty. While it shows greatness of soul, it brings justice into ill repute. Perfectly scrupulous justice has its unique splendor, but falters in respect to wisdom. The collaboration of Themistocles and Aristides was short-lived and unstable equilibrium, yet even this is rarely duplicated in the lives. Plutarch says the cooperation of diverse human types is exemplified in the lives of two Thebans, Pelopidas and Epaminondas. The former, highly spirited, delighted more in physical exercise and hunting. The latter, delighted in lectures and philosophy. According to Plutarch, Pelopidas and Epaminondas truly co-ruled the city and co-commanded the armies. There was no rivalry between them, but only rivalry with the enemies of Thebes. Whereas if one looks at the other three intersecting pairs mentioned in this passage by Plutarch, all Athenians incidentally, Themistocles and Aristides, Pericles and Cimon, Alcibiades and Nicias, in every case one was a vigorous rival with the other, sometimes at a cost to the city. The city flourishes when these complementary pairs are friends, or at least partners, more than rivals. Whether it is the gentle Epaminondas with a spirited Pelopidas, or the steadfast Aristides with a sea-tossed Themistocles. This cooperation does make one wonder, however. Can the complementary virtues of these partners be found in a single human? Or are, the, are human beings inevitably driven into athletes and students, mariners and hoplites, the wise and the just? The differences between Themistocles and Aristides, and more than this, the wider multiplicity and variety in Plutarch's lives, put me in mind of Socrates' question to Mino. What is virtue? And Mino's answer, the virtue of a man is to conduct the affairs of a city, to benefit friends and to harm enemies. The virtue of a woman is to manage the household well, preserving it and obeying her husband. There are virtues of the young and of the old as well. Socrates responds that he is fortunate if in seeking only one virtue, he's found a swarm of virtues gathered around Mino. If, as Mino says, the virtues are justice, courage, moderation, wisdom, magnificence, then what is it by which each of these things, despite their differences, are virtues? Every veteran of freshman language is acutely aware of the difficulty Mino faces in trying to answer Socrates' question. I mentioned before how Plato's dialogue, The Laws, describes the establishment of a second best city. At the dialogue's end, I mentioned, we hear of a council that introduces into the city a sanctioned place for the pursuit of wisdom through conversation. The council discusses questions such as whether gods exist and whether they think about human affairs. It is said that this council must also investigate and even know how the several virtues are one. In this dialogue, the question that vexes Mino turns out to be the fundamental question to be discussed among the rulers in the best practicable city. Plutarch's explicit pairing of Greeks and Romans and his implicit pairings of contemporary intersecting lives indirectly pose these questions. What is virtue? Can it or has it been realized? While the contemporary lives of Themistocles and Aristides point to the possibility of a life that could subsume and reconcile the virtues of each, Plutarch sometimes points more to the fragmentation of virtue than its unity. Making excuses for his life of Lucullus, 
a first-rate Roman general noted for debauchery and retirement. Plutarch says, quote, it's difficult, nay, rather perhaps impossible, to represent a man's life as stainless and pure. Thinking about the errors and defects that these men exhibit due to passion or political necessity, he says, we should regard the defects as the shortcomings in some particular virtue rather than as evils pertaining to some vice. Such defects are introduced into the account not eagerly, not needlessly, but from respect and awe for human nature if nature should exhibit no character coming into being that is purely noble and indisputably set towards virtue. When Socrates asks for virtue itself, Mino responds with a swarm of virtues, Plutarch, a swarm of remarkable men, each of whom in the pursuit of some form of virtue departed from virtue itself. Philippomen, the last of the Greeks, quote, made Epaminondas his great example and came not far behind him in activity, sagacity, and indifference to money. But his hot, contentious temper continually carried him out of the bounds of gentleness, composure, and humanity, which had marked Epaminondas. And this made Philippomen thought to be a pattern of military rather than civil virtue. Philippomen made an excellent choice of a life to imitate, perhaps the best, but his nature was ill-suited to the life he admired, or perhaps he lacked the self-understanding to recognize and adjust the differences between himself and his model. Dion faced a similar problem. By nature, he was very grave. His gravity served him well as the foundation for greatness of soul and a daring freedom of speech. Nevertheless, when Dion stayed with Plato, Plato sought to temper and sweeten this gravity to lend his friend more grace. Dion liberated Syracuse, by raising the people against the tyrant. But he was eventually undone, in part, because the people resented and distrusted his gravity and his haughtiness. His natural temperament both grounded his distinctive virtues and put a limit on his achievements. This interaction between temperament and virtue multiplies the virtues. Plutarch goes so far as to say, quote, for surely courage differs from courage, as the courage of Alcibiades from that of Epaminondas and wisdom differs from wisdom, as of Themistocles and Aristides, and justice from justice, as of Numa and Agesilaus. The problem is not just that Plutarch, like Mino, has given us men with many virtues when Socrates had sought one. It is not just that each man exhibits some virtues and lacks others, but that each virtue in each man becomes unlike the same virtue in other men. Virtue as a whole comes into view as courage, moderation, justice, and so on, but each of these is endlessly fragmented. If there's a typology for this fragmentation, I have not found it. Certainly the project of writing lives is not carried out in a uniform way. Some pairs lack introductions, some lack comparisons. With their explicit and implicit comparisons, the lives as a whole exhibit internal structures but they do not constitute a recognizable whole. Amidst this swarm of virtues, can one discern, at least in thought, what virtue itself may be? Might it even stand there embodied somewhere among the lives? Let me note two problems, one only in passing. First, gender. Mino says the virtues of a man differ from the virtues of a woman. If it were true that the virtues of men and women differ, 
Still Socrates, I suppose, would insist that virtue itself would have to be the form of all kinds of virtue. Even if some virtues are gendered, virtue itself is unlikely to be masculine or feminine. But it's difficult within the lives to test this line of thought, as Plutarch has given us only the lives of men. Plutarch does periodically praise the character and virtues of women appearing in the lives, but the lives provide a meager source for thinking about this question. The second difficulty I'll face more squarely. All the lives are those of statesmen, but can the whole of virtue be developed or exhibited in a political life? What of the contemplative life? How could the life of a statesman offer the leisure to pursue it or the stage to make it visible? Plutarch puts a higher value on what is, sorry, Plutarch puts a higher value of putting what is thought into action over the thought itself. Quote, Lycurgus's design for a civil polity was adopted by Plato, Diogenes, Zeno, and by all those who have won approval for their treatises on this subject, although they, although they left behind them only writings and words. Lycurgus, however, produced not writings and words, but an actual polity, an example of an entire city given to the love of wisdom. This comment is eerily prescient of Machiavelli's famous complaint against merely imagined republics. Quote, many have imagined republics and principalities that never have been seen or known to exist in truth. For it is so far from how one lives to how one should live that he who lets go of what is done for what should be done learns his ruin rather than his preservation. Plutarch appears to share Machiavelli's suspicion of anyone who favors what is imagined to the exclusion of what is done. But unlike Machiavelli, neither does he favor what is done to the exclusion of what is imagined. He is focused on the realization of the imagined, endeavoring in whatever way possible to make good the fruits of contemplation in the sensible realm. The question of whether a single life could at once encompass contemplative and practical virtues leads me to my second pair, Cicero and Cato. Cicero makes a jest at Cato's expense. Having run for consul and failed to attain the office that is Cato, Cicero says of Cato, he acted as if he practiced politics in Plato's Republic and not among the dregs of Romulus. Cicero's quip suggests that even were Cato a philosopher king, a man of this type would not be fit to seek and obtain office in Rome. Cicero's jest, however, takes on another dimension when Plutarch himself says of Cicero, quote, when he was appointed consul in name, but really received the power of a dictator, he bore witness to the truth of Plato's prophecy that citizens would only have respite from evil when in one and the same person, great power and wisdom should be conjoined with justice. Cicero seems to be saying that even if Cato were a philosopher king, there would be no place for him as of Rome, consul of Rome. While Plutarch seems to be saying Cicero was, for one year, philosopher dictator of the dregs of Rome. It seems clear that Cicero and Cato constitute an implicit pairing like Themistocles and Aristides. Both opponents of Caesar, each is paired with an Athenian counterpart, an Athenian opponent of Alexander, um, Cicero with Demosthenes and Cato with Phocion. 
They are comrades in arms with strikingly different characters. Cicero has the sharpest wit of Plutarch's subjects. The historian spends several pages recording quips. Cicero jests even when seriousness is called for. Carried away, he often neglects propriety. When defending a prosecution advanced by Cato, Cicero publicly ridicules Cato for the paradoxes of his Stoic philosophy. And Cato responds dryly, what a funny man we have, my friends, for consul. Cicero is noted for his, uh, Cato, sorry, is noted for his austerity, of course, and it was hard to make him laugh, though he would occasionally smile. Plutarch endorses Cicero's jesting criticism of Cato up to a point, drawing an analogy between the governance of the city and the governance of the cosmos. Quote, the sun has neither the same motion as the heavens, nor the one that is directly opposite and contrary. This might be familiar to readers of Ptolemy. But it takes a slanting course with a slight inclination and describes a winding spiral of soft and gentle curves, thus preserving all things. And so, in the administration of a city, the course which is too straight and opposed in all things to the popular desires is harsh and cruel. But the administration which is yielding and grants what will please the people in return for obedience, this one conduces to safety. Cato appears to miss the requisite balance. He exceedingly loved a justice that is stubborn and unbending to favor or to equity. He could not be elected consul because he sought to preserve in his manners the dignity of his life and would not exert himself nor try to win the people by humane discourse. Plutarch's attribution of philosophic kingship to Cicero seems prompted by his education in Athens. As a young man, he considered devoting his life to philosophy. He was reluctant to seek political office. Among the Romans, he came to be known as the scholar, or even the Greek. As an orator, his admiration for philosophers and their higher calling seems to have freed him from envying his fellow politicians. It may be that his attention to philosophy led him to regard human affairs with diminished seriousness, giving license to his clever jests at the expense of his peers. Certainly he's contemptuous of wealth, both for himself and for Rome. He endeavors in vain to persuade his peers that the sound domestic rule of the city is more valuable than foreign conquests. Elsewhere, Plutarch says that philosophy enables one to make judgments that have firmness and strength on the basis of opinions that are abiding and unchangeable in the face of any outcome. Cicero exhibits a kind of intellectual virtue in the conduct of his consulship, investigating and apprehending the conspirators with sober reasoning and surpassing sagacity. With the conspirators in custody, however, he has to decide whether to execute them without a trial He's reluctant to do so because he's merciful by nature and because he fears to make excessive use of his power and prompt retribution. On the other hand, he fears to spare the conspirators lest he be thought cowardly and unmanly. When the matter is brought before the Senate, Caesar argues persuasively against execution, saying that the men should be banished instead and their possessions confiscated. Cato, in a passionate, angry speech, accuses Caesar of trying to subvert the state by means of a popular pretext and humane words. Cato wins over the Senate, and Cicero carries out the executions, although he remains merciful in one respect, 
At Caesar's recommendation, and congruent with his own nature, he refrains from confiscating the condemned conspirator's property. Despite his vacillation during the critical decision, Cicero showed, according to Plutarch, how invincible justice is if it is put correctly into words by highlighting the advantages of justice and removing what is vexing. Perhaps we can regard Cicero's vacillation as the deliberation necessary for coming to a wise and firm decision. But like the cooperation of Themistocles and Aristides, it seems Cicero could not have saved Rome without Cato's assistance. Cicero exhibits a concentrated presence of mind throughout the episode, but lacks the resolve to bring it to conclusion. His resolve is strengthened not only by Cato, but by his wife, Terentia, who's rather bolder and less gentle by nature. Showing courage once as a young man, Cicero proves cowardly at other moments in his career, and he's later excluded from Brutus's conspiracy to assassinate Caesar precisely because of this lack of boldness. This deficiency worsens with age and is vividly displayed at his death. Having a death sentence put upon him by Mark Anthony, rather than quickly seeking safety abroad with Brutus, or, on the other hand, accepting death calmly, not too much after all, before it would have become before it would have come to him by nature. Cicero vacillates again, alternately fleeing and delaying until being caught on the road and pitifully executed. He does not die with the calmness and courage of a Socrates, who is the explicit model in the death of Cato. The scholar's caution prolongs deliberation and seems to rely on external sources of firmness. Cicero's seeming philosophic kingship lasts for but one year. The unprecedented honors and fame bestowed upon him nearly ruin him. Fame not only harms his career, Having received such great honors, his vanity makes him odious to his colleagues and an easy target for banishment. But it even corrupts his love of wisdom. In the course of his banishment, he does not return to Athens. He does not return to liberal and moderate philosophical studies. Instead, Plutarch says, he hovers on the edge of Italy, grieving and longing for Rome like a bereft lover. According to Plutarch, Cicero's life shows how an intemperate love of fame has a terrible power to dissolve reason. As the passions of the multitude impress themselves on one's soul, attending too much to these impressions, one loses sight of what is real. Cato appears more secure and complete in his justice and courage, but his virtue has the defects noted before. He preserves his august austerity at the expense of gentle reasonableness. With the possible exception of the single year of Cicero's consulship, neither, man, neither man's conduct fulfills Plutarch's analogy to the sun's inclined path in the heavens, striking a balance between opposing the passions of the people and yielding to them. If Cicero did attain complete virtue, he certainly did not sustain it, as his political success nourished the vice that weakened the hold of philosophy on him. If a man is praised as a philosopher king, noted for accomplishments in the academy as well as in the forum, if he exhibits prudence and measure in his rule, but still falls short in courage and firmness, even to the point of bringing his wisdom into question, one might conclude that virtue as a whole is exhibited by no one. 
The most one could wish for is a complementary pair in which the distinctive virtues and faults of each is remedied by the other. The competitive atmosphere of political life naturally elicits rivals with diverse strengths. In reference to the rivalry and friendship of two Spartans, Agesilaus and Lysander, Plutarch says, quote, natural philosophers are of the opinion that if strife and discord should be banished from the universe, the heavenly bodies would stand still and all generation and motion would cease in consequence of the general harmony. And so the Spartan lawgiver seems to have introduced love of honor and rivalry into the regime as an incentive to virtue, desiring that good citizens should always be somewhat at variance and deeming that complacence, which knows no effort and no struggle, is wrongly called concord. The wise lawgiver does not seek perfect unanimity or unanimity or uniformity in character. This passage, like many in Plutarch, you may have noticed, reminds me of Machiavelli. <clears throat> for the Florentine, whether it's more fitting for a ruler to be impetuous or cautious depends on the times. And no one is so prudent as to know how to change his nature to suit the times. Although Machiavelli insists that founding a new regime requires one who rules alone, from that moment forward, a republic is more resourceful than a principality, precisely because it contains many men of different humors suited to the varying circumstances of the times. For Machiavelli, there is no human excellence fit for all seasons. Virtue takes on many forms. It may be merciful or cruel, liberal or parsimonious, faithful or faithless, so much so that the difference between virtue and vice gradually dissolves, and one easily endures the infamy of those vices that do no harm to one's state or even benefit it. The fragmentation of virtue is complete. The centrifugal forces that fragment virtue appear no less great in Plutarch than Machiavelli, but one sees as well in Plutarch, sorry, one sees as well Plutarch occasionally reflecting on how to counteract those forces. The centrifugal forces may be most apparent in the lives of Coriolanus and Alcibiades. What is striking here is that their similarities and differences are equally salient. Both were ambitious, uncommonly brave, and uniformly successful in military exploits. Both fell short as statesmen. Alcibiades was loathed by sensible men for his decadence, Coriolanus hated by the people for his haughtiness. Both were exiled, and joining with the enemy did great harm to their own cities. Despite these parallels, they could not have been more different. Alcibiades was a rogue and erotically licentious. He got money by ill means and spent it worse. Coriolanus was a simple man of exemplary moderation and indifferent to wealth, perhaps to a fault. Striking similarities in virtue and career are built on entirely different temperaments. Coriolanus has great bodily strength increased by long exercise, but more than this, he's noted for the boldness of his soul. He has no education to speak of. His high spirits make him daring and insensible to bodily danger. He's paradigmatic for ancient Rome, the city that erroneously takes manly courage to be the whole of virtue. Forgetful of his body, he's likewise indifferent to material goods. He accepts no gifts for his prowess in battle, except the gift of a name. 
the name of the city he has almost single-handedly conquered. He identifies with his name. The end of all of his efforts is to receive the glory suitable to his excellence. He neither accepts favors nor grants them, with one exception. Rigorous in his practical reasoning, he lacks grace. Indifferent to his own body and cognizant of his rare virtue, he has little concern for the bodily welfare of common people and their needs. He's eloquent when he chooses to be, but gives way to anger and contempt instead. He prefers to make friends of the enemies of Rome rather than with his own people. He's self-willed, unfit to live with others, destined for exile. His spiritedness counts life as cheap. Alcibiades, by contrast, is a great lover, a seducer of men and women, a seducer of the common people of Athens and of Sparta. In his cleverness, he's an Athenian in the mold of Solon or Themistocles. His public speeches have great grace and charm. He's a man of versatility, a chameleon, able to eat black bean soup like a Spartan, ride like a Thessalian, drink like a Thracian. He has a rare physical beauty that's lovely and pleasant at every age. His way of life is luxurious, his dress effeminate. He's wanton in his affairs, tyrannizing over his lovers, treating his wife little better than a slave. The respectable men regard him as lawless and contemptuous. The common people hate him and yearn for him at the same time, generously making excuses for his transgressions. Alcibiades finally succeeded too well in courting the love and admiration of the people. According to Plutarch, he was ruined by his own glorious reputation. The common people had such high regard for his daring and cleverness that when he failed to achieve some good, they assumed the failure was intentional, and so they punished him for it. It's a strange pairing, one of the earliest, almost legendary Romans with the foremost general at the decline of Athens. I think it's... Um, I think it might be the only pairing in which the um, Roman life precedes the Greek life, since naturally most of the Greek lives come before the Roman lives. The two lives hardly seem parallel, yet both men are exiled, both stand on the cusp of tyranny, a driving passion, spiritedness in one, erotic love in the other, renders the soul of each uncontrollable. Both are courageous, yet their courage is utterly dissimilar. The Greek word courage, of course, is derived from the word for man. Coriolanus, in his courage, is the manliest of men. Alcibiades is no less bold. He, like Coriolanus, scores a signal victory by entering an enemy city with far too men at his far, far few, sorry, far too few men at his side. Yet Plutarch repeatedly points to Alcibiades' effeminacy. In his versatility, uh, he is closer to Helen than Achilles. One is reminded of Plutarch's comment that the courage of one man differs from the courage of another. It could not be more true in the case of these two. Given Coriolanus's lack of education, one may suppose that a good education could have corrected his faults. The education of Alcibiades at the side of Socrates makes one somewhat less confident Fearing that Alcibiades would be corrupted by the favors of great men, Socrates sought not to suffer such a fair flowering plant to cast its fruit to perdition. He wished Alcibiades might achieve the greatest good promised by his nature. Alcibiades' failure to do so suggests that a first-rate education at most nourishes, nourishes a few strengths and moderates weaknesses. 
Quote, so Alcibiades, whenever Socrates found him filled with vanity and wantonness, was reduced to shape by Socrates' speeches and rendered humble and cautious. And he learned how great were his deficiencies and how incomplete his virtue. Although it is essential to, rec although it is essential to recognize the incompleteness of one's virtue, remedying this incompleteness does not appear to be fundamentally a cognitive task. If Plutarch has a remedy, it appears to be a musical, emotional alchemy, a blending and mixing of temperaments through friendship. It aims at complete virtue without conceiving it with any clarity. Coriolanus is an extreme case of a general type also manifest in the life of Pelopidas. Here Plutarch points out the need to relax and soften highly spirited unruly natures by means of love and friendship. For this reason, the lawgivers of Thebes made a place in their city for the goddess Harmonia, daughter of Ares and Aphrodite. They thought that a regime is consonant and well-ordered when the restive and warlike men are continually engaged with those who possess grace and persuasiveness. In Thebes, the spirited and the erotic are brought together in friendship in order to restrain and bend their passionate natures towards an excellence that stands unseen unstated between them. Pelopidas is highly, highly spirited, loving of labor, more inclined to gymnastic exercises than lectures in philosophy. Yet his friendship with Epaminondas turns him away from Coriolanus's excesses. He is not self-willed. The friendship leads him to regard his wealth, his noble deeds, even his own life as shared with others. At the same time, Differences between the two friends highlight the persistent incompleteness of virtue. When both men are put on trial, Epaminondas bears the charges magnanimously. Pelopidas seeks revenge. In the end, he puts himself in mortal danger. Having too few men at hand and trusting in his reputation to protect him, he gives away his life because he cannot subject, subject, he cannot subject spiritedness to calculation. Plutarch appears to have Socrates' questions in mind. What is virtue itself? What is it that the multiple virtues have in common? But as obstinately as Plato, he gives no answer in the lives. Part of this has to do with the genre itself. Forgoing the eidetic account of virtue, choosing instead to write about how they come into being in particular circumstances. Conception of the form of virtue is obscured by taking into account the conditions under which the virtues emerge, one's birth and family, temperament, education, and political culture. This focus on particularity is partially remedied by the larger structures amongst the lives. Plutarch views the lives in pairs, the pairs themselves forming larger constellations, as if it is only through recognizing the diversity in human types and meticulously weighing them than what can steer a course toward the good by aesthetic sense more than precise argument. Plutarch's mode is more synthetic than analytic, more musical than dialectical. One seeks in the city, but also within the soul, the most concordant and musical blending of harmonies and rhythms by which it is said God administers the cosmos. Plutarch is a Platonist of a sort, his subject is the descent of the soul, not the precise articulation of the form of virtue, 
but the multitudinous ways they come into being. The unity of virtue lurks amid the lives, but is nowhere manifest. Comparing the lives has the effect of drawing attention to the shadows, Aristides' poor economy, Cicero's irresolution, Coriolanus's graceless self-will. Yet in only one pair out of 23, Demetrius and Anthony, are the two lives set out as simply to be avoided. Here alone does Plutarch say, medicine to produce health has to examine disease. Even for traitors like Coriolanus and Alcibiades, or Sertorius and Eumenes, Plutarch's mode alternates between refined criticism and reserved admiration. His criticisms are penetrating, yet without condescension or acrimony. He blames Pelopidas for letting the exercise of one virtue suppress the others, but he does not cease to respect that overdeveloped courage. Even though the lives show flaws, even though these flaws are sometimes fatal to the very enterprise to which the men are dedicated, the lives are not tragic. They do not evoke pity and fear. Plutarch denounces superstition no less often than he commends reverence. Although Plutarch's subject is the descent of the soul, he does not lament that descent. In trying to comprehend Plutarch's project, I was reminded of his description of Spartan education. Young adults in the presence of elders question the youths. Who is the best man? Or what kind of conduct is this? The youths grow accustomed to judging what is noble, and their critical abilities are sharpened as they must give concise reasons or, and proofs for these judgments. This passage is often cited in seminar in order to give some credibility to Plutarch's rather surprising claim already mentioned that this city as a whole philosophized. This evidence is generally not satisfying, as the conversation of the youths does not seem sufficiently penetrating to merit the name of philosophy. But what if Plutarch's description of the Spartan education is intended as a quite modest representation of his own practice in writing the lives? Plutarch commends philosophy at every turn, including mathematics and natural philosophy, but he does not exhort us to ascend through dialectical argument until one departs the sensible realm and grasps the forms. The lives are mirrors, as Plutarch said, the reader must navigate his or her own life among the images, all the time questioning the nature of human excellence, but compelled, as Plutarch says, to fashion and order his or her own life before the answer to the question is grasped. Thank you.